Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, did the federal budget open the door for a liberal NDP coalition? We'll answer that question for you. Is it time to break up the RCMP and create a better and more secure force? Tasha Carradine, principal at Navigator, wrote an interesting op-ed piece about that, and she'll join us and talk about that. And Donald Trump will be indicted and arraigned in a New York court tomorrow. How's that going to affect the presidential campaign? Reggie Cicchini will join us with the details on that. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Last week at their caucus meeting, the federal New Democrats were taking a victory lap, really, uh, suggesting that they were responsible for an awful lot of the quote-unquote good things in the budget. Here's NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Yesterday's budget shows that when New Democrats have power, we get things done for people. That's what it's shown, that we use our power to make people's lives better. Well, that was the NDP leader, and that's not unusual, I suppose, in politics, you know, to put some spin on this and see just, you know, who's responsible for what, I suppose. Uh, joining us to talk about this and uh, lots more in Ottawa for the past week, I'd please to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, welcome back. I hope you had a good weekend. Hi, Bill. I did. Yeah, thank you. I hope you did, too. I ask that, oh, it's fabulous, fabulous. Details about that later on. I finally went and saw Hamilton, uh, the incredible play. Oh, it's nice. it's, worth, it's worth the trip anyway. Let's let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Ottawa and, and the spin that's going on, which is not unusual, uh, I guess, after a budget like this. The NDP were being criticized for the longest time now for propping up uh, a government that uh, many people said had gone long past its best before date. Uh, you know, why are you doing this, especially with some of the allegations about uh, the Trudeau government's handling of some of the key issues like uh, foreign investment, etc. This budget was a chance to change the channel on that. And and for, I think for Mr. Singh, his comments there about how, we, you know, this was an NDP liberal budget, that those were his words, is, is really, I guess, maybe a, an opportunity for him to try to justify why they are still holding the government up. I think so. I mean, at this point, as you say, with some of the allegations against the government and a general sense of voter fatigue with them, I think over time, an agreement like the Liberal NDP coalition, not coalition, sorry, uh, Confidence and Supply Agreement requires a different kind of justification because the NDP have to explain again, you know, why even as the, the, the kind of world shifts around the government and there are more questions raised and there's again, you know, this kind of sense of, of just fatigue with it all, why are they continuing to hold them up? And so we can see now that Jagmeet Singh is saying, look, this is actually an NDP, like everything that's good is it, that is in the budget is because we put it there and we insisted on it. And so I think what he's trying to do, he's actually go, doing a kind of a leader's tour on the budget, which is unusual, but he's trying to get people to make a connection between the presence of the NDP and the outputs that are actually going to make their lives better so that when we go to the polls next, whenever that is, there's going to be more of an incentive for people to cast their vote with the NDP, even if they don't think they're going to form the government. So he's asking people, I think, indirectly, kind of implicitly, to reconsider the types of strategic voting sometimes that can be very uh, lucrative for the Liberals. Then say, look, you know, even though the NDP may not be you know, the, the most likely choice to form government, the presence of the NDP is important. You mentioned the word coalition. Uh, yeah, and, by accident. And, 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 oh, yeah, who hasn't, though, Laurie? I mean, come on, if we, as we've talked about this government, that that's the, the phrase we always tend to slip into. And uh, Chantal Hebert uh, posted a column in the Toronto Star uh, just a couple of days ago, said that the federal budget laid the groundwork for an NDP liberal coalition. I know you've read the piece. I know you and I have talked about this uh, numerous times ever since this deal was struck between the two. Uh, I 
don't think there's much of a chance of that really happening. What are your thoughts on that? We have always had in our system, especially federally, this kind of allergy or just, you know, people do not see how coalition governments can work. Of course, in other parliamentary systems, they do. And in our system, it's just the parties tend to operate on this zero sum kind of attitude, right? You can't, if you're with us, then you're, then you're against them. The parties vote as blocks. They don't seek ways to cooperate unless they have to. And sometimes the cooperations that we see in a, in a minority government circumstance, for example, tend to be on an issue by issue basis so that you don't actually see even an, a, an agreement between the parties over time. You see something that's just the government gets support on each bill individually. We just do not seem like the sort of system that anybody's working toward that shared governance and shared accountability. It's just not not the way we've done things, but it's, it's totally constitutionally legitimate. I think the circumstances now, because of the way the party system is shifting, and there's a whole wonderful analysis here on, you know, pushing the parties out toward the fringes and a lot of people don't feel that they're represented by any party and you get a, a you know it's it's weird you know in a democratic marketplace to be thinking so many people feel un, unrepresented by anyone that's not supposed to work why are the parties not finding ways to connect with with more people that seems stupid but we have a kind of left right and not as you know not as much in the middle we've got populism in ways that we haven't had it before we, and so i think now this is going to be about how do, do the Liberals and the NDP maintain what they've got as the Conservatives grow in their support, if they do, under Pierre Polyev? So it could be that, you know, the NDP want to increase their, their share. Sorry, I'm going on too long. They want to increase no. their share. Um, if it so happens, for example, that Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives in the next election are the ones that have the, the, the party with the, the most seats, but not a majority, could we see a scenario where the NDP say to the Liberals, look, we'll prop you up, but we want to be at the table. So I think this is a whole bunch of positioning for a possible outcome like that. And, and therein lies the problem. I think it's it's the, the chemistry of a possible coalition. Uh, hmm. you know, in, in, if we look at past examples, and as you say, in other parts of the world, especially in some of the European parliaments, uh, those, those governments don't exist without coalitions. I mean, they're just too many parties that nobody ever gets a majority. But that means that means power sharing, which is something that they don't like to do in Ottawa. You know, Jack Meet Singh would have to be in the cabinet, maybe in some, you know, maybe even as deputy prime minister. Uh, other NDPs would have to have cabinet positions in there too. Uh, and and I know there'd be a lot of pushback. I mean, this is a very unholy alliance, even as it stands, isn't it, Laurie? They, these two teams don't like each other. It's interesting, and I think you're absolutely right. It's there's a whole lot I think that the two teams agree on. Now, not everybody on in each team will agree on everything for sure. But if you, I mean, I don't think it's too hard to imagine a scenario that if, um, you know, you were in another place at another time, that Justin Trudeau and Jigmeet Singh would be in the same political party. Like, what, what are the massive issues that are keeping those two on different teams? I don't think there's very many. I think mm -hmm. that they are wearing different jerseys. I think that they are, um, they have reasons why it is, it is beneficial for them to be leaders and captains of two different teams but is it really serving canadians to have these two different teams i think both both of them would say yes it is because the liberals are the government and the ndp are holding them to account and pushing them to do these things that are important but is there a reason why we wouldn't get the same result if the two teams either cooperated more or actually merged to form one team so whatever happens i would think if jagmeet singh is going to continue on in this space 
Yeah. If I were him, if, and if they go through another government and if Pierre Polyev is either, he's either got a plurality of seats or he's got a lot more. If I were Jigmeet Singh, I'd say, yeah, I'll be taking a seat at the cabinet table. And no, not deputy prime minister, which the prime minister can totally make and however he wants. I would be like, I will be the health minister. I want to have a seat at the table for real. And so that might be the circumstance we see. But again, that's, you know, then Trudeau or whoever will be the leader at the time has to go tell the Liberal caucus that we're putting the NDP in cabinet, but not you. Like, that's going to be a tough sell. Well, absolutely. And, and I, I think maybe even the tougher sell right now, I'm not sure the Canadian public is is ready for something like this. I mean, there was a lot of negative reaction when this arrangement was was uh, publicized and, and these guys came together on this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's the old idea when you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Uh, NDP yeah. supporters are pretty ticked off with this. Liberal supporters are pretty ticked off with this. And I, I don't think the public looks at this in, in, in a very positive fashion these days. So there could be, you know, if they were to announce this, for, for instance, before the next federal election, there could be a lot of pushback. You know, they could be punished for something like that. Oh, yeah. I think if they were to actually openly campaign on the fact that they will co be damaging to both parties, because, you know, if you vote liberal, that doesn't mean that your second choice is the NDP and vice versa. It might be really damaging for them and they might both lose support as a result. I think they probably would. On the other hand, if they don't come clean with it during the campaign, and then they decide to form a more formal arrangement afterward, then Pierre Polyev is going to say, A, this is a rogue, you know, this is BS, and I'm the one who won the election, and they're going to play the tapes from back in 2015 when Justin Trudeau said when he was campaigning at the time, you know, because that's what that's what we're in sure. now. Like, this is politics, right? So they're going to say, no, no, he said that the person who went, comes first should form the government and blah, blah, blah. And the other thing they're going to say is nobody campaigned on a liberal NDP coalition. This is, he'll go back to the tapes from 2008. When Stephen Harper said, if you want to do this, then campaign on it. And if you win, fine. I think that Pierre Polyev is a far more skilled uh, communicator in terms of his own constituency, his own, where he's drumming up support. I think he's even more of, a, of an effective communicator than Harper. So I think it would be a very uh, risky thing for them to, to try to go through with this in, you know, after an election result. Uh, in another time and place, a phrase you used a few minutes ago, I, I want to switch gears for just a second and talk about uh, Aaron O'Toole, uh, former conservative leader, of course, uh, before Pierre Polyev, who stepped down uh, from uh, his position as an MP. Uh, of course, he was a failed uh, leader of the party as well. Uh, and, and to that, just to turn your phrase back into Mr. O'Toole, I think, Laurie, another time, another place, he may well have been an effective leader of the progressive conservative party nationally, uh, but this is not... The, the progressive conservative party of, of, of Brian Mulroney or Jean Charest or any of those other people. This is a party that's changed considerably. And he was, I, I don't mean this to be insulting, but he was yesterday's man as far as the party was concerned. I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a whole, there's a lot of analysis to be done on the, the short runway of Aaron O'Toole as leader of the party. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if he had been the leader of the progressive conservative party, it would have been a completely different thing for him. But I think he, you know, he campaigned while he was leader, or sorry, he campaigned to be the leader by making the sorts of promises to the different parts of the party that are not, you know, not progressive conservative, not red Tory. He was making promises to the social conservative side of the party, to the um, the, the parts of the party that are very concerned with gun ownership to, you know, different things like that. The parts of the party that are very resentful and, and, um, 
you know, curious and suspicious about the sorts of rules that we followed during COVID-19. He made those kinds of promises. Then he becomes leader. And then when the campaign hits, he's acting like a different guy. And so I think what one thing we've learned is you can't do that. But the other thing we've learned is that he was not able to keep the various parts of the party together. So then the question becomes, is Pierre Polyev the guy to do that? I think he is becoming because he is making it very clear that the party is going to be about certain things, at least for a period of time. I don't think Pierre Polyev is going to make the kind of switch during the campaign that Aaron O'Toole did. He's not going to come out and start talking about, you know, red Tory progressive things. Like he's not, he's, he is, I don't know what he's going to talk about because he tries to avoid talking about substance as much as possible, but we'll, it'll be interesting to see what kind of campaign he runs. But I think it's this, his leadership is more an indication that certain parts of the party have taken over as opposed to a constant existential crisis about the different factions of the party trying to find enough to agree on. And so I think he's doing something quite different than Aaron O'Toole did. Well, and he's appealing to the power base of the party now, isn't he? I mean, that's the the Stephen Harper, uh, you know, element of this. You know, this, Mulroney, is, this is, yeah, this is the alliance, uh, the the reform alliance party that's really running the conservative party right now, as many people had feared when they, they, they cut that deal with Peter McKay and, and Stephen Harper years ago. Hundred percent, exactly. Like this is, I mean, people say now, like you know, that wasn't a merger in two thousand three or four or five. I forget. That was uh, a takeover, and so now we're seeing that. We're and even and the interesting thing though is at a time where a lot of people are saying, "Where the heck is red Toryism anyway?" Right? That wasn't so bad. <laughs> like what? What about that sort of? Government is for something good, but we've got to be responsible with money and leave people alone when it comes to their private life. Like that, that sort of space seems to be not taken up by anybody. Although I will say in my home province in Nova Scotia and in Atlantic Canada broadly in the Maritimes, um, we all have progressive conservative governments and none of them is terribly ideological. Like you could say Dennis King is going to another election today in Prince Edward Island, Lane Higgs, Tim Houston. They are all progressive conservatives. They are all, you know, I think they could all be described as red Tory in their own way. And they all have identified as, as so, I think. That is not the kind of conservatism we are seeing in Pierre Polyev at all. And so we still see a breakdown in the conservative movement in Canada. It's just that I think what Pierre Polyev is doing is shoring up the conservatives on the federal side around his messaging that he's been consistent on for a while, although he's still kind of evasive, if you ask me. It's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, fascinating uh, dynamic that's going on there right now. We'll see how this plays out. As always, Laurie, thank you so much for this. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Have a good week. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University with her take on what's going on in federal politics. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some concern about a report that came out just a few days ago, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau continues to put off promising to follow on any of the recommendations from the inquiry into the Nova Scotia shooting. The Mass Casualty Commission released its final report just a couple of days ago. Of course, that was the incident, the tragedy that left 22 people dead in April of 2020. Trudeau was asked uh, today or yesterday, of course, whether or not the government is going to actually read and follow any of those recommendations. There were very strong and clear recommendations put forward that are going to take uh, time to absorb and to build action plans so we can meet them. Um, it's something that obviously Canadians feel a real urgency around. We need to continue to do everything we can to ensure that communities are safe. Uh, key words there, action plans, study in detail, which basically means no, not right now. That seems to be uh, the, the story behind the, the explanation there. Uh, that 
is not going to satisfy anybody. It shouldn't anyway, uh, especially in light of the fact that the RCMP has been under heavy scrutiny for a variety of reasons over the last little while. And this report really just kind of underscores the need for massive change, not for tweaking. There's an interesting piece uh, written by our next guest that talks about that. It's called Break Up the RCMP, Professionalize Our National Policing. Uh, the author is Tasha Kierden. Tasha, of course, is a principal and navigator and an author of this piece that was in uh, the new Substack uh, site. Uh, Tasha, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Are you there, Tasha? Yes. Uh, ah, there we are. Yes, we are. <laughs> Sorry, I was checking my mute button for a second. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Anyway, uh, here we are. Uh, you heard the Prime Minister over the last couple of days talking about the recommendations that are included in here, uh, his public safety minister along the same lines. Uh, it, it sounds to uh, an awful lot of us, myself included, as if what they're trying to do here is just kick this down the road. It does, unfortunately, and this isn't the first time. There have been other recommendations over the years um, to reform the, the RCMP, and they've also fallen on deaf ears, um, which is really unfortunate because we're facing a situation now where it's not just the local policing that is in jeopardy, as this report, the Mass Casualty Commission report, clearly shows the ball is dropped on so many places. And that's partly due to the structure of the RCMP. We can get into that and why the local policing piece is not part of the mandate that many people feel it should continue to have. But there's also now the national issue um, of you know intelligence sharing with CSIS, for example, a lot of other big picture issues where the RCMP should be playing a critical role, but is also not living up to what it should be doing. So it's a really a time for change. And that's why I said, break up the RCMP, uh, give it a clear mandate to do what it should do well and take the other stuff away and give it to other police forces to do well as well. As, as you mentioned in the piece, I mean, the, the obvious way to do this, just ask the minister in charge here, Mr. Mendocino, what's the purpose of the RCMP? Uh, it, <laughs> there, there's no direct answer to that because they're trying to be everything to everybody in different parts of the country. Well, yeah. And there's a problem too, is the RCMP reports, to the public safety minister. You just yeah. made a very good point, right? It's not um, politically neutral in that sense. It is under the, there's there's no independence. It's not like an FBI. It is not something that has its own mandate where it can investigate uh, the government. Here, it's, it's reports to the government. That is a conflict there. Um, and in the past, uh, there's been issues around certain um, investigations by the RCMP that have been quashed by the federal government that, you know, was it a political reason? We'll never fully know. But the problem is the minister has that power. So we are in a situation where, yeah, um, we've got to figure out how to police properly at all levels. We have major challenges in this country. And, you know, what happened in, in Port of Peak and in Nova Scotia in general should never happen again. There's an interesting aspect of this that you included in, in the piece that you wrote uh, that I, for Substack, by the way, that I found intriguing. Uh, invariably, when something like this happens, and, and this is not unlike the, some of the inquiries into the Canadian military over the last number of years, uh, what they usually do is make a couple of changes at the top. You know, some person retires or, or, or is replaced, uh, and they figure, okay, that's got it. Uh, but what you're intimating here in, in, in the piece is that uh, it's, it's middle management that, that really seems to be where most of these problems are. Yeah, I interviewed several people for this piece, including Todd Hadley, who's a professor um, at Fleming College in the School of Justice and Community Development, who's a former RCMP officer, retired. Um, and he said that actually exactly that. It's the middle management where the change is seen because that's where people are in their daily contact with their sergeant, their staff sergeant, their inspectors. He said, you know, the first year that you are on the force, 
you have basically one person in charge of you, almost like a mentor. And if that person has, you know, antiquated views, is you know, different ways of policing that word that are not enforced today, things like now we, you know, mental health and other issues are, are very important. That person will imprint on you, right? When you're in your first year, they have your career in your hands. So you will end up replicating their behavior. So he said, it's impossible to make change unless you retrain the middle management. He said, if you have a new commissioner, even if it's in civilian ranks, you know, civilianization is a good thing, but it's not going to make the change we need. But it's, you know, in the Nova Scotia tragedy, uh, they were the local police. Uh, in some places, they're the provincial police. In some places, they're supposed to be an intelligence agency. Uh, how, how thin can you spread yourself? Well, you can't. And this is the thing is that the RCMP has evolved greatly since 1873 when it was founded as the Northwest Mounted Police. And the goal was to police where there was no policing, which was out in Western Canada, in Northern Canada. They had a model where everyone would go through the depot to be trained. It's called depot in the central facility in Regina. That's still the model. That's where every Mountie goes, gets their training, and then they're shipped out to various places. Now, the problem is, like you said, sometimes within the force, your goal may be to, I want to go and work on organized crime, cyber crime, national issues, you know, border control, whatever. You still have to go through the various spots. You get your training. You, you're farmed out to a small community. But you're not going to stick around there. Your, your head is somewhere else. So you're not going to be necessarily serving that community well. You're not going to be integrating. And at the same time, people who want to be community policers, they're also being moved around. So they're also not getting that chance. They may not want to do the higher level stuff. It should be split out. It really should to have people who are able and want to make a career in different places. But to that point, and as you say, when you go back to the raison d'etre for this uh, Northwest Mounted Police, patrol where police are not there. But what's happened as a result of that, a number of municipalities have basically said, hey, we don't have to create our own police service. We don't have to pay for that. We'll just contract out with these guys. And, and they've taken those contracts on, uh, which is not really what was the, the, the intended purpose of this, this police force in the first place. No, it wasn't. And some, con some communities are now pushing back and saying we don't want the contract. Um, you know, Surrey, B.C. ended its contract, even though it'll cost. And this is the thing. It costs more to hire local police. Um, it then comes oh, sure. off your taxes. And that's an issue. Right. So that's a disincentive to do this. But they decided to because they said exactly the community was not being served. It was a South Asian community that has grown in the area. They didn't feel the relationship was, was developing properly because people were cycling in and out. There was no relationship. Um, Grand Prairie did the same thing there. The frustration was with training. And they said, people come to us from the depot. They're still pretty green. They're getting their training here. Well, we don't want this. We want people who are going to stay here, learn the community and, you know, and come here with skills. And that's another recommendation that um, people I interviewed said that, you know, there should be higher level. People should have university degrees, for example, if they go into the national force, like in the FBI, people would have a degree in law or, or economics or forensics or whatever and even have a three-year degree for policing. That's one of the recommendations in the report itself, which also recommends, by the way, the depot model be, be scrapped. They say that, you know, it be phased out by 2032. So there's a lot of stuff in the report that's really good. Um, but you're right, if it sits on the shelf, it's not going to make any changes. The other thing that, and, and we've talked about this in the past, and I think what, what happened here with this report, it probably underscores the need to really pay close attention to this, is this very poor cooperation uh, between policing agencies or intelligence agencies uh, here. For instance, it's pretty clear to me, and from what we've seen over the last couple of months in reporting, that CSIS and the RCMP not only don't get along, but don't seem to want to share information with each other, which is really counterproductive to what they're supposed to be doing. 
Yeah, there's been a bit of testimony of that at the uh, Canada-China Committee. Um, Michelle Juneau-Katsua, who uh, testified last week, is one of the co-authors of, a, of an infamous, I will say, um, RCMP investigation called Project Sidewinder, which is from 1997. Back then, they were already making links between Chinese criminal gangs, triads, as they were called, and uh, Canadian business, political leaders, this idea of infiltrating and influencing. Um, and it was that investigation was quashed by the Liberal government of the time, because many people say, allegedly, well, that we're talking about people that were that were related to the government, that were that had links to the Prime Minister, that, you know, people that names popped up in there, and they were, they were accused of being conspiracy theorists and all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, what we're learning today is they were not. They were actually, they had dug up a whole bunch of things. But CSIS, the Security Intelligence Review Committee, rather, dismissed the report, and CSIS was accused of watering it down, so there was all this competition between agencies. Why? You know, this, this sort of this interagency warfare doesn't help anybody. Neither does the politicization at the RCMP level because they report to the government, like I said, directly. So there's got to be a way to better share intelligence. Um, you know, Katsuya recommended actually they set up a separate com- a separate agency entirely that is separate, that does not report to government, um, that is, is, is apart from the RCMP and CSIS. Now, we may not want to go that far because that's another agency, but... Even if we don't have that, the RCMP should not be reporting to the government directly. It should be able to investigate it independently with no political interference. Well, and you ask, I, I guess it's somewhat of a rhetorical question, but it certainly I think begs an answer these days. I mean, are we hanging on to the RCMP and basically giving them uh, a, a wide swath here because of, of sentimentality? I mean, you know, the Northwest Mounted Police, you know, the the the. The, the ride, you know, the the surge, the red surge uniforms, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, that, that's a Canadian tradition. I, and I understand that. And we need to respect that and honor that. Uh, but uh, are, are they a 21st century police force? Well, this is part of the issue is that it's a third rail, right? No one wants to touch this because there are defenders, obviously, of the RCMP, their history, what they represent. I don't think you have to lose that if you modernize the force. I think, um, like you said, keep it in context. It was a very different time. And we can maintain certain ceremonial traditions, absolutely. A musical ride, everyone loves a musical ride, but the point is that's not going to protect, you know, uh, Canadian, Chinese Canadians from transnational oppression. It's not going to bring back the people who were killed in Nova Scotia. It's not going to protect us for the threats like cyber, which is a huge developing area that were never foreseen in 1873. So we have to take action and be sure that we're making the smart decisions and not just be clouded by the fact that, yeah, it's a symbol of Canada and you know, that, that's something that a lot of people have dear in their hearts. Is there an appetite to, to exact any of this change, though? I mean, you know, the, the, well, as I say, the Prime Minister's comments, Mendocino's comments over the last couple of days have basically said, well, we'll study this. We have to decide on a strategy, et cetera. It, it seems pretty obvious that, that, that this is going to have to take some drastic action. Um, yeah, there's a lot of action that should be taken. And if we wait another 30 years, like, you know, Sidewinder was 30 years ago, um, we're going to have a serious problem in this country because we are facing threats that are, are very, very serious that we've seen. I mean, with, with President Biden's visit, right, the subtext of the entire visit was the growing uh, competition between the United States and China. And Canada is really caught in the middle of this. We cannot afford to let ourselves be compromised. We must make sure that our sovereignty is protected. Um everything from, you know, the military to the RCMP to intelligence. I don't know if the appetite's there, Bill. I fear that it's not. Um, But I think that if enough pressure is applied, then maybe there can be change, which is one of the reasons I wrote this piece. 
Which is what they're going to do. I mean, I can foresee though, Tasha, that, you know, that, well, we're going to appoint a new commissioner and, and everything will be fine. They're, they're going <laughs> to bring in some new innovative ideas and, and you know, and oh, okay, fine, we'll give that a shot. And as you say, next thing you know, it'll be 30 years from now, we'll say, I guess that didn't work. Let's try something else now. There's got to be an attempt. As I say, policing in itself has, has changed. Uh, intelligence gathering has changed. Uh, there, this is a more dangerous place internally and and globally. And uh, I just wonder if these guys have kept up with the times. Clearly not, based on the, on this report. Yeah, clearly not. And this is this is why, you know, the report itself um, came out also just after the budget, you'll know. And in the budget, the government threw $49 million at the RCMP to tackle some of those challenges you're talking about, to keep diaspora communities safe from foreign intimidation or interference. Um, but uh, in response to that, actually at committee, one of the former CSIS officers, Dan Stanton, said, you know, every time we have a crisis in 32 years that he's been doing national security work, the government just throws money at the RCMP and says, oh, you fix that. And that's not going to work if the RCMP itself has problems. So um, while it's good to see the government wants to take action, it's sort of passing the buck here to an organization that may not be able to handle it. And that isn't getting the, the the structure, not the resources, but the structure it needs to make sure that it can do the job and that the right people are assigned to the right things. So, again, to your point, um, a lot of lip service. Uh, the political will doesn't seem to be there for for immediate change, but there has to be change. So the pressure has to be kept on. And I think the more stuff comes out also um, at various committees and uh, to uh, the special rapporteur and all sorts of stuff that's now studying issues of national concern the pressure will continue to be applied and something has to give. It's a fascinating piece and, and very thought-provoking and insightful, too. It's uh, substack.com is where you can go to pick uh, your piece up and and, and uh, get some insight as to what's happening here. And I'm hoping that the minister reads it as well. Well, thank you. Oh, I hope so, too. Won't hold my breath on that, Tasha. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Bye. Take care. Tasha Curitan, uh, Principal at Navigator and author of this piece on uh, Substack. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yeah, the big news is uh, happening in New York, Manhattan specifically. Uh, former President Donald Trump uh, will be uh, arriving shortly, we're told, in New York. And uh, tomorrow he will be arraigned in a downtown Manhattan courtroom. And uh, as you might have expect, there's going to be some reaction and a great deal of of a reaction, not just uh, in the courtroom itself, but uh, well, right around the country, especially in downtown New York. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, is in New York City right now for that arraignment, and he joins us uh, for his uh, weekly segment with us. Uh, Reggie, uh, pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, set the scene for us. What are you seeing uh, downtown in, in Manhattan by the courtroom? Hey, Bill. Uh, so for the most part, uh, it is a media circus uh, outside of the courtroom right now. So apologies in advance, even my signals don't come but for the last several hours, uh, it has been a kind of growing uh, media presence outside of the courtroom. There have been a few people who are on the pro-Trump side who have been walking up and down the sidewalks, but it has been largely peaceful. Uh, it is expected to get slightly more chaotic in the hours ahead as the former president lands in New York. He will head to his, uh, his uh, residency at Trump Tower later today before coming to the courthouse tomorrow. But for the most part, uh, the city is prepared. The police are prepared uh, for anything that may happen. 
The distance here, and my understanding is the courthouse is is in Lower Manhattan. Uh, Trump Tower is uh, some distance away. I, I guess up uh, Fifth Avenue. Uh, it, it's, it's this is almost going to be like a parade situation, isn't it? I mean, there's going to be crowds. Of, I would assume people along the way tomorrow. I mean, it's going to be quite a, a scene, isn't it? It is. This is going to be treated as if it were a a dignitary uh, movement in and around. You know, we're used to this in Washington when. Uh, when a presidential motorcade has to make its yeah. way through, they have to shut down the streets. They have to be able to clear out uh, so that somebody can move around. Uh, this is what we are expecting tomorrow. The former president's residence is uh, several kilometers up the road from where we are. And in order to facilitate that movement, the Secret Service uh, and U.S. Marshals are going to have to shut down several uh, 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 long segments of the surrounding streets and Fifth Avenue for the former president to get down to the courthouse. And they're expecting that that drive uh, could take upwards of 30 minutes. Uh, if that happens around midday, noon, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, there is a chance for a bit of gridlock uh, throughout Manhattan, and then there is just going to be an immense amount of security in and around the courthouse tomorrow, which already today is layered behind three or four different uh, levels of barricade. Reggie, talk to us about the security there and what's happening. I, I heard a story over the weekend that uh, New York City police have simply canceled days off. I mean, if you own a uniform, you're wearing it today and you're out there somewhere. Yeah, we've, we've, we've seen this before. When I was here a couple of weeks ago uh, in the kind of lead up to when the former president said that his arrest was going to be imminent, all police officers were told to be prepared to work. And we are in that situation again. 34,000 members of the New York Police Department are being told uh, starting today and through the next several days to show up at work in uniform. This is going to be a citywide preparation for not only the kind of lead up to the arraignment, but also for what might take place uh, afterwards. And this goes far and beyond just what's happening outside of the courthouse. There is a potential for uh, a gathering of people anywhere between here and Trump Tower. And then in any of the boroughs, they are also uh, expected to have police on standby. So the security presence here in New York is, uh, is extreme and they are not taking anything to chance, especially when you have people like Donald Trump using their social media to try and gin up the base, to try and get some kind of reaction. Uh, let's talk about that reaction, and, and I'll, I'll start, if I could, Reggie, with uh, the Republican reaction to this, which has been fast and furious, if I can borrow a phrase. Uh, even Trump's opponents and some of those who have criticized him in the past from the Republican Party seem to be rallying around him now. Absolutely, they're rallying around him. Uh, and, and it's people from within the deep parts of the Republican Party and from within the kind of opposing parts of the Republican Party, people who may themselves be trying to further their political aspirations by jumping into the 2024 race. This is a moment that Republicans have rallied around uh, the man who is ultimately still the leader of the party. And whether you are someone like Senator Lindsey Graham, who is caught up in investigations in and around Donald Trump in Georgia, or the Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's been towing the Trump line for several years, or your Ron DeSantis, who has a 2024 aspiration, but at the time is finding himself in a position of having to stand behind Donald Trump. This is a moment that you see Republicans rallying behind one person. We have seen this before each and every time Donald Trump finds himself in some form of legal or political peril. He is able to remain at the center. He is forcing the Republican Party to stand behind him. And ultimately what he is doing is ensuring that the base underneath him is still in support of him. 
Well, especially as you say, from a political standpoint, whether you're Ron DeSantis or, or, or you know Mike Pence, uh, you don't want to tick off that base. I mean, that's that's a hardcore base, and they're hardcore Republicans. Uh, and whatever happens to Donald Trump, uh, you don't want those people angry at you. It's political problems, at least. There's someone like Mike Pence or, or Ron DeSantis, because there has been uh, a polling that's been done over the last several days since the indictment was announced, and there were independents. Uh, that were approached that may have been shifting away from Donald Trump, but in the wake of the indictments, which they see as some form of political persecution or some form of ongoing witch hunt by, you know, led by the Democrats, these independents who may have, you know, opted at one point to potentially switch to, to a Mike Pence or a Ron DeSantis are angry and they are going backwards to Donald Trump, or maybe not have come from but having been supporters from 2016, and herein is the problem for Republicans that find themselves lining up behind Donald Trump, is that the base is going to go back to Trump, and they're going to have a harder time picking away, as opposed to, uh, you know, Republicans maybe distancing themselves from Trump, saying, look, there's too much political baggage here, there's too much legal baggage, and trying to kind of break through to the base. Until that happens, there are more people to Donald Trump, which posts for other Republicans trying to move forward. Uh, Reggie, you're kind of breaking up in and out, and that's quite understandable, of course, uh, being right downtown in Manhattan. We're going to t- I'm going to take a, a short break here. We'll try to reconnect uh, and get a bit of a stronger signal because there's an awful lot more to talk about here. So glad you're with us this morning. Uh, Reggie Cicchini in New York City uh, waiting for the arraignment of Donald Trump, which is going to be tomorrow, but the crowd's already gathering. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Connecting with Reggie Cicchini uh, from Global News, who is downtown Manhattan uh, as the crowd gathers uh, for the arraignment, which is at least 24 hours away. Uh, but Donald Trump uh, has drawn a crowd everywhere. He's gone, of course, for about the last seven or eight years, especially uh, in light of what's happened with Mar-a-Lago and charges in, pending in other areas, too. Uh, Reggie, uh, the other element of this that I find rather interesting is, is since he was indicted a couple of days ago, He's turned this into a fundraising uh, enterprise, hasn't he? I mean, he's raised, we're told, over $4 million in the 24 hours after the indictment. And uh, the the campaign contributions just keep on coming in. Yeah, and and look, we have to take them at their word right now. We haven't seen any kind of um, uh, financial submissions to how much they've actually brought in. But they're saying it's $4 million. And what we're also understanding here uh, from at least the campaign is that a broad majority of the donations that are coming in are from first-time donors to the president. So again, he is using this to his political advantage. He has already said that he wants the base, uh, or at least he said this to, to his inner circle, that he wants the base to see him as a political martyr, as someone who has been able to weather the storm of Democrats for the last uh, you know, X number of years. And if that $4 million number is in fact true, uh, this is working for him. Uh, and and you know, for the people who have you know, said, well, maybe this will be the end of him on that, you know, race to 2024. Again, if he's getting first-time donors, this could signal that Donald Trump, even amid what could be incredible legal peril, whether from this or any of the other investigations, his base is not going anywhere and, in fact, may be expanding. What are you hearing about those other investigations? And you and I have talked about those in previous weeks, Reggie. The, uh, the Georgia, the Mar-a-Lago investigation, uh, a number of things that have gone on and are ongoing investigations right now. Uh, I would imagine they're still going, but, I mean, is, is are they taking a back seat now, just saying, okay, we want to let this thing uh, uh, un- unfold until, and then, you know, we'll move on with our stuff? 
In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, there have been some people within the kind of political legal world who say that at least the investigation linked to the uh, the mishandled classified documents in Mar-a-Lago, that that investigation itself could be on the approach to a close, given the fact that there have been uh, uh, big moves in that, you know, Trump's attorney had to turn on him a couple of weeks ago and testify to a grand jury. But we're also hearing this morning that several members of the Secret Service may also themselves now have to testify before a grand jury in that mishandled classified document scandal. Uh, and this could become more problematic for the former president, because not only is he facing these potential state charges here in New York and, and whatever else may come from that when the indictment is unsealed, these are federal uh, uh, issues that he would be facing in what could be a rapidly closing investigation. And from the legal world, they say if that investigation in Florida happens to close quicker, uh, because it's a federal trial, it could wrap up within four or five months once it finally starts up in front of a, in front of a judge and a jury. So whatever happens over you know the next couple of days here, this is going to be a year for Donald Trump that is going to prove incredibly problematic. Now, as to what's going to happen to our, we, we talk about the arraignment, uh, and he'll surrender himself, quote-unquote. Uh, we're told there will be no handcuffs. He will be fingerprinted and processed and uh, the questions asked of him, etc. Any idea as to when a trial itself might actually be at, undertaken? So one, once the processing takes place, I mean, he's done, and we're expecting to have a, a hear from him at a, at a news conference in Mar-a-Lago tomorrow night. So this is going to be a very rapid process that takes place uh, in Manhattan. The legal world says that a state investigation is going to move slower in that this case may be underway, but not likely wrapped up definitely by the primaries early next year, but may actually still be ongoing by the time the election shows up in November. And how that's going to play forward, uh, you know, that that's something that's still going to need to be seen. How does a potential president who is elected find himself uh, still in the middle of a court process when there would be all these DOJ guidelines that you can't uh, have any kind of charges against a sitting president. So this is kind of when we say it's historic, each step that we're taking in this process is choreographed, but we're not sure what the next step uh, is going to be. So this this trial could take a longer time to start up, uh, but the former president has no intention of stepping down. And when he is arraigned tomorrow, Bill, as we're all expecting, he is expected to plead not guilty. Mm-hmm. What, what are you hearing? I know you've been talking to folks in Washington before you, you got up to New York uh, about what might happen here. And, and the, I, I, I know it's it's probably a fool's game to try to predict what's going to happen in the courtroom. Uh, but there are those critics that are saying, look, at this is this is a, a, a very, very tenuous uh, charge. I mean, there's only 30 charges, and I guess we'll find out what those are tomorrow, too, when he's processed. But, I mean, the key witness here is Michael Cohen, who himself went to jail for, for you know, being less than forthcoming, shall we say, about this whole situation. You know, if if the state is hanging all that uh, with, that's at stake here on Michael Cohen, what are the chances of, of, of a conviction in situations like that? What are you hearing from from the so-called experts that have all weighed in on this now? Well, look, there, there are some state attorneys that I've spoken with in the last couple of days who say, look, Michael Cohen himself may be problematic, at least in the public's eye, because not only uh, has he been convicted of lying in the past, but he's also found himself in jail. But at the same time, uh, these same legal experts are saying, what else does Michael Cohen have to lose by coming forward and testifying and providing this information into uh, the former president? And also, at the same time, you have some Democrats, including a couple I've talked to, uh, some Democratic staffers who say, look, regardless of whatever Michael Cohen has done in the past, the fact is 
Donald Trump has now lost that kind of shield of invincibility that he's been hiding behind for the last several numbers of years. Uh, and if, in fact, these indictments open up and there are far more or they are broader than what everyone was expecting, these Democrats say it is simply a proof now that we can say nobody is above the law. So whatever Michael Cohen has done or said in the past, this has proven at least to some Democrats that it was able to blow off a lid and somebody who has, you know, regardless of what their political background is, uh, has said that they, you know, have never done anything wrong. There is now an opportunity to say, look, Donald Trump, you are now no longer above the law. And that is something the Democrats are simply riding on. That uh, idea of political interference is going to hang over this thing right from the beginning. I would imagine if there are any subsequent charges or indictments from any of these other investigations, that that's always going to be the, the first tool that the Trump team is going to use in their defense, isn't it? This, this is all politically motivated. Uh, or to use his phrase, a witch hunt. Sure. And, and he's been running with that. And so, too, have the Republicans that are lining up behind Donald Trump, that this is nothing but uh, politically motivated and, and, and that witch hunt is continuing. But again, the fact that you have a former president now standing before a judge within a matter of 24 hours on what could be dozens and dozens of charges within a sealed indictment, uh, it is harder and harder to say that this is simply a politically motivated issue, especially if it has to do with things like tax fraud and falsification of business documents. This is uh, this is part of an investigation that has been going on for years. Yes, it has been partisan and that it was spearheaded by Democrats uh, in the position of district attorney. But ultimately, at the end of the day, these district attorneys are not simply going to bring forward fake charges. Uh, this is this is something that is real and is playing out. And Republicans will have to deal with how they move forward with the fact that this is going to go before a judge. Reggie, one other thing that's just surfaced in the last couple of weekends, and it's speculation at this stage, but I mean, it is a possibility uh, that Trump's lawyers are going to ask for a change of venue uh, simply because they're going to argue anyway that he can't get a fair trial in Manhattan. Uh, one person, he only got 12% of the vote, I guess, in the, in the, uh, the election, uh, the, the presidential election that is in that area in Manhattan. Uh, and the argument is, is that uh, it's going to be very difficult to find people who are quote unquote impartial there. What are you hearing? Yeah, and I mean, that's an argument that is that is coming up from both sides. But at the same time, there are legal experts saying that a judge does not have to agree to a change of venue solely because uh, the other side wants that. It's going to be at the court's discretion. And we haven't heard that uh, Trump's team is actually going to announce that. Uh, but, you know, if you move yourself outside of Manhattan, which is obviously a, a very heavily Democratic borough, uh, elsewhere around the country, it is harder and harder to find somebody who does not have an opinion of Donald Trump, uh, whether it's for or against. So I think, you know, if there is a change of venue, either side may be able to say, well, look, we're going to be able to, uh, not going to be able to find something impartial. That's something we'll have to wait for uh, when uh, when motions are put towards a judge, which could happen as early as today, because there are additional issues, Bill, including allowing for cameras in the courtroom and to unseal the indictment early. These are things that may be dealt with at some point today, which could potentially change how things operate come tomorrow. Lots going on, and, uh, well, comes to a crescendo, I guess, when he shows up tomorrow. Uh, we'll be watching for your reporting, as always, on uh, Global National, Reggie. Thanks so much for this today, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, uh, Global News in downtown Manhattan uh, by the courthouse, uh, where Donald Trump uh, will be appearing. Uh, the last we heard, he was uh, just about to board his plane in uh, in Florida and uh, take a trip to New York. He'll be staying, as Reggie mentioned, at his uh, residence at Trump Tower. And then uh, he's in front of the judge tomorrow. And we'll see what happens as a result of that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.